Welcome to episode two of Untold Wealth, your daily, weekly, however you want to listen to it, source of economic information. Uh, my name is Devin, and this is Vince Belak. Vince Belak, and uh, all you need to know about us is we're two huge super nerds um, who love economics. Uh, we both studied economics in the past. We we've chatted about it our uh, our entire friendship, and we both kind of fell in love with various concepts and and uh, chit chats about various topics. And uh, the natural progression in 2023 is to obviously start a podcast. Mm -hmm. So this is episode two. Um, how Vince and I work is uh, how how the podcast works rather is Vince and I sit down. We theory craft. Uh, titles for episodes uh well in advance all right and the title for today's episode is economics is a game and nobody knows the rules great title. Um, for, great title thank you thank you actually i can't remember who made that one up but uh they were on their a game for sure um and the whole idea is that we both we say the title and we both don't tell each other in what direction we're going to take this title from. You know, uh, we can research independently. And then during this podcast, we come together and chat about some stuff that we've researched. It could be the same stuff. It could be completely different stuff. Uh, all you need to know is we're going to be chatting about it. It's going to be a fun time. And it's going to be palatable for those who aren't necessarily financially or economically inclined. Um, all right. I'm so let's really get excited for this episode. You're excited? Oh, okay, cool. Because um, So I took it in a... Uh, okay, let me start. I took mine in a very game-theoretical behavioral economics direction. Sure. Um, exactly. And for those of you who don't know what game theory or behavioral economics is, I'll give you a short description. Uh, obviously, I don't want these episodes to be necessarily us presenting you a bunch of uh, phrases or... Or words and just dictionary wrote learning it but you know it's sometimes it's helpful just to know the status quo and uh, and know a definition behind it so we can work on the same page all right so how i would describe behavioral economics to someone is it's pretty much the study of how um economics differs uh when we're talking about classical economics all right the study of how it changes when we actually take psychological effects uh, into account when we decide how uh, economic models respond to stimuli. Um, how I described it and what I wrote down is if humans can better understand what causes humans to make decisions, we can better avoid things like externalities and improve incentives for each party. That's a great quote. And that kind of ties, yeah, and that kind of ties into to game theory. Game theory is very much a uh, you know a segment of economics that uh, tries to how would I say give ascertain numbers and incentives and utility towards different choices that players in a game have um, and behavioral economics is very much tied to, to that kind of thought. All right, so I, I gave a few phrases there. I gave classical economics, behavioral economics, mm -hmm, externalities, mm -hmm. incentives. Doesn't really matter. All you need to know is classical economics, people and, well, rather economists assume, and assume is a big word, that people are rational. People behave in a rational way. The catch-all term for rationality 
um, you can kind of substitute it for self-interest. People are overall self-interested. But even beyond that, they're self-interested in a very efficient way, all right? That they, they won't just see two outcomes and necessarily choose what's worse for their neighbor, but they'll most likely choose what is best for themselves. Um, all right, so that's rationality. So how does behavioral economics differ from rationality um, in classical economic models? Well, behavioral, e yeah. behavioral economics made a completely different phrase. You'll never guess it. They called what they describe as their assumptions as bounded rationality. <laughs> Humans are bounded by certain uh, psychological uh, effects that in their day-to-day -day life, you know, you will never be aware of until you actually look at empirical evidence and you figure out, huh, humans aren't necessarily making the best decisions for themselves in, uh, in some instance. So pretty much what I did is, uh, it was the easiest research ever. I looked at different ways that humans don't act, act uh, excuse me, rationally. And uh, some of these are insanely interesting. Um, and <laughs> I'm sure there were plenty actually, of examples. Oh my word, it was amazing. And I tried to steer away from the examples that even most uh, economists would hear when they're studying or when you're you know, studying your undergrad or even your masters. Some of these are just um, quite eye-opening. Uh, and it truly does show you that you know, we really don't make the right choices all the time. So before I uh, go into a few of uh, what I've discovered, Vince, can you think of, of any way that humans don't act rationally, just off the top of your head. I off mean, the maybe top of my head. Today. Uh, I think this morning I I, I woke up before this work, morning even this morning, <laughs> and I I looked in the fridge and there was this delicious little chocolate bar, and I thought to myself, you know what, I could have this now, which would completely ruin my appetite, or I could have it later, uh, and probably eat it at a more ideal time of the day and uh -huh. then I, I ate it right then and there yeah. that that i think uh, is exactly. a very rational thought and and that is what we describe as self-control <laughs> right um at, or like they're no i'm being or like they're of exactly um in fact, Adam Smith, who many believe to be kind of the progenitor of modern day economics and classical theory, knew that humans being did, human beings didn't behave necessarily rationally. And self-control, especially in a very temporal sense that you described, right? You very much knew when you were about to eat that chocolate bar that you should eat it later at a different time, you know? Uh, the same thing can be applied when you open a bank account, all right, and you don't choose the correct interest rate, or you go and, uh, I'm trying to think of some better example that's not necessarily like opening a fixed account at a bank, but human beings don't necessarily think too far in the future when they make decisions, when, you know, rationally, if you look at the efficiency, the outcome of a choice, you know, uh, rationally, you should actually think a little bit further into the future. The tragedy of the commons is a very common example of that. Um, for those of you who don't know the tragedy of the commons, let's say, for example, there is a common shared pond of fish. There are five villages, and if each villager takes one fish per day, that pond can last for an eternity. All right? Yeah, well, let's just give that as an example. 
uh, human nature in many circumstances like this across uh, history has kind of led us to the realization that human beings just don't don't choose that practice. That temporal analysis that 10 years down the line, I'll have a fish, you know, uh, doesn't add up. The second villager after one week will take two fish and then the entire ecosystem of that pond right. will slowly and gradually degrade. Um, oh, sorry, that's a bit of a, <laughs> it's a bit of a morbid note, but that temporal analysis is, uh, is something that humans, you know, don't quite get. Uh, Adam Smith also, uh, knew that humans weighed losses heavier than gains. This was famously, uh, famously and empirically cited by Amos Tversky. Um, and I probably butchered that pronunciation. I actually looked up the pronunciation for the podcast and and i can't remember it so that's a little bit embarrassing <laughs> you said it with your but, chest uh, so i believe you oh oh yeah exactly there, there was some confidence behind it so uh, i'm not too i'm not too displeased by it but um him and his partner uh, daniel kahneman um very much went apart about uh, analyzing this empirical data and found that people very much are unhappier when they lose five dollars they're more unhappy relative sense then they are happy when they get ten dollars for free um that that's, sense of loss uh weighs a lot uh, heavier on the human psyche than people believe that makes and then the sense third is over but it's very yeah, interesting yeah. like it's fascinating yeah and then and then thirdly uh overconfidence and this is back in the 1800s um people just believe they're better than they actually are mm. you know uh if they if they look at their series of results across their life you know they they think I mean, listen, human beings have intrinsic worth. You know, you're not only measured by your results, but also in a very rational sense, results sometimes don't add up to what you think of yourself, right? So these three senses, you know, people have had an idea that we are not, uh, we are not rational human beings for a while. But um, now I'm going to go through a few thought experiments, all right? And okay. you'll probably end up agreeing that you would do the... Uh, you know, irrational behavior in this thought experiment, but you won't kind of be able to tell yourself why. Lay it on me. All right. Let's start uh, with the first thought experiment. And this is one I'd never heard before. And it is called the pain of paying. Can you have a guess of what the pain of paying is? The pain of paying. Yeah. Does it have something to do with the fact that maybe like... The more you pay, the more painful it is. Like it's a little bit of an exponential curve of. Um, I mean, listen. Um, definitely, there's probably some exponential curve you could uh, add to the equation. But I was thinking along a little bit more simpler terms. Okay. Uh, it just means that distributing pay points along some kind of transaction often lead people to have different checkpoints on how they uh, perceive that interaction. So that was a long way of saying that. Oh yeah, continue. Does does that no. add anything to what you thought it was going to be? So, like, could could you give an example? All right. Okay. I'm Devin. I'm going into my favorite uh, vegetarian restaurant. I'm sitting down. Usually, I look at the food prices. I eat the food or order the food and then eat the food and then I pay at the end. However, psychology works out a bit differently if, for example, they had a machine. I, it's automatically connected to my bank account through some wizardry. Let's not go there. 
But every time I have a bite of, for example, my uh, you know chickless uh, sandwich, you know my bank account depleted. You know, thirty-five cents oh. for that bite. Ooh, a larger bite. That's a yeah. That's cents. painful. <laughs> that's that that's going to feel a lot worse in your mouth when you're chewing. Every, every bite is going to feel like a transaction. It's going to feel like you've been stabbed. Like your psyche has to analyze every single bite and uh, how much it is worth to you. Um, and and that's you know you could imagine that quite stinging if you get that shoved into your face. So that is the pain of paying. Um, <laughs> and I thought that was very interesting because I wouldn't want to go to a restaurant if every single bite, you know, the waiter's telling Absolutely me. Absolutely not. That was like 10 bucks right there. He's just Yo. standing over you, watching you as you. <laughs> 50 cents. Exactly. I mean, insane stuff. Um, I'd never heard of that. I mean, Tragedy of the Commons is, is a classic thought experiment, but that, that really that tickled my fancy. Um, all right, I have another one for you. If uh, if that one, if that one, absolutely, you. I'm I'm ready. Now, some of these thought experiments, you know, they they go along a rabbit hole of a sure, sure. But <laughs> you know, for a rational human being, this is what you would do. All right, this next one is called the mm. traveler's dilemma. All right, there's I'm going to give you the whole backstory behind dilemma. the traveler's dilemma. Okay, it's kind of like a little story. All right, imagine two antique salesmen. All right, they both travel to some exotic land and they, and they get an antique each, all right? Both of the antiques are not worth the same. One is more expensive, presumably, and one is less expensive, you know, yeah. just let's say. Um, but while they're traveling, uh, both of them break. All right, but, they, but for some reason, the you know, luggage on this plane is insured. Um, and then in, in the story, let's say the captain, is the one that has to pay out the insurance. All right, cool. So the captain says, ah, I see you guys have lost um, an antique each. All right, here's what I'm going to do. Okay, he gives them both a piece of paper and he says, all right, both of you will write the value of what you have lost um, on your piece of paper. Okay, if the value oh, up from one to 100, <laughs> for example. Okay, if the value matches the other person, all right, I'll give you both that exact value. So, I mean, you think, cool, both people are going to yeah. write 100. But what he says as well, the person who, who writes the lower value, because the person who writes the lower value you would perceive as more honest. I mean, they could have got 100 bucks, but they're writing down 90 instead. He will give an additional $2 to you. So if that person writes $90, he will get $92, you know, as a right. Okay. Honesty. All right. The rational, yeah, the rational, logical thought process to this, all right, from a bird's eye view, get the is most out of the money. Right yeah. But aha, person number one, yeah, person number one says, no, 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 there's actually a way I can get $101 out of this. I'm going to say $99. Yes. All right. And then 99 plus 2 gives you $101. However, person 2 knows that person's probably going to write 99. I'm going to run that, write 98. And this, this circular thinking 
circles all the way down until both of them write one dollar all right and both of them walk out of that plane with one dollar of their insurance value classic um i just thought that was that was quite an interesting dilemma yeah so that's just that's pure rationality and how um how you know you can dig yourself into a hole if you're if you're purely rational um you know most people would not do that but a rational uh classical economic economics thinking uh human brain might just think just like that um, do you want to do I it right now quite an interesting one as well. shall, shall we do that try right now like i'll type a number in my discord chat you do it in your discord chat and we send at the same time okay but how about this i i'll actually give you that number in rands between one rand and a hundred rand how about that okay if you write okay. 99 rand and i write uh, 100 rand i will give you 101 rand simple as that on our next on our next uh, visit to each other's places yeah you know, i'll just okay. slap the hundo and one rand into it all right okay okay <laughs> i like those things okay, give, okay give me one second mm. how much are you it's a willing weird one. to it's a weird use? one because if we both write 100 we both write a hundred then we both get nothing so i have no incentive to try write a hundred like i'm trying to get money out of you here <laughs> but the lower we choose the more certain that money becomes mm. okay i'm gonna lock in a number okay i have i have my number as do I. okay three two one enter okay i texted it to you Oh, I DM. Oh, <laughs> wait, no, that's, that's me. That means I win. Oh, wait, what? <laughs> okay, you guys can't see this. <laughs> that means I win. For those of you that can't see, I I hit enter first. It appeared on, on the screen first. I chose 51 Rand. Vincent, in his stupidity, um, entered 54. So now, because I was so honest, I chose the lowest number according to our little um, anecdote earlier. Vincent owes me 53 rand, 51 plus two. So um, that's a kawaii smoothie that you owe me essentially, Vince. Um, Isn't it weird that I'll we both chose the 50s though? I know. I instinctively went to, to 50 as well. So I was like, listen, any hard number, nah, 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 nah. We're going to half what the number is and we're just going to bank on it. Because I think I was fine giving anything below 50. 50 feels like a well above amount. Like if yeah. you put 34, I'd be fine giving you 36 rand. It's, it's not even worth it at that rand. point. Yeah, it's like not even worth it. Like, of course. That's very interesting. I like that. So, all right. Okay. Uh, I'm feeling great. I'm sure your losses are weighing very heavily right now. Yeah, more than um, if I, I, <laughs> I'd won, yeah. That you'd won. I mean, I'm feeling good. You're probably feeling goddamn miserable. <laughs> and you should be lost to me um all right um before we hand over to vincent and see what he's prepared i have one last one um this is and this is something you would have heard all right before so this this effect and this this kind of uh lack of rationality does not I'm not saying it for interest that you guys may not have heard of it before. It's called the bandwagon effect, you know? Mm, um, that does seem familiar. If someone, 
Yeah, bandwagon effect is quite simple. You see other people doing it, you do it yourselves. It's not necessarily rational. You're not using all the information present to you to make your own uh, self-interested decision. You're just hopping on the bandwagon. Um, it's actually used quite extensively in game theory and, and classical economics to determine market forces um, or where market forces are going to, for example. Um, but where do you think the term jump on the bandwagon came from? My first thought is that it comes from when American settlers were heading west, from the east coast to the west coast. Wow, that is that is an it is it is incorrect. Oh. That is that is no, but that's very astute. I mean, it's it's kind of along the same lines, and yeah, I can imagine going from east to west, you know, towards uh, more more uh, you know splendor. Um, that's quite astute. So, it's, uh, yeah, what no, does that actually You're mean? half right. has to do with Americans, okay. particularly American elections. Um, and hopping on the bandwagon is still used today in, a, in American elections. Um, I'll just read you the excerpt so I don't get anything. The phrase jump on the bandwagon first appeared in American politics, 1848, during the presidential campaign of blah and blah. Uh, a famous popular circus clown of the time invited Taylor which is one of the presidents running at the time, to, to join his circus bandwagon <laughs> as Taylor gained more recognition and his campaign became more successful. People began saying that Taylor's political opponents ought to jump on the bandwagon, i.e. in today's politics, Democrats that aren't polling so well, you know, cut their losses essentially jump on the bandwagon of the Democrat that is polling well, yes. give their audience to them so that they can still, you know, the Democratic Party, for example, can still retain power. Um, and I just found that interesting because it kind of just stated that clowns were immensely popular back then. <laughs> I just found that I just found that funny. Like <laughs> it was something to be admired to jump on a bandwagon with a clown. That you know, that a whole phrase got kind of built around it. Presidential um, <laughs> like presidential approved. Exactly, exactly, exactly. Um, yeah, so Vince, that's pretty much all I have today in terms of uh, in terms of what I prepared. Do you have any questions for me That's um, that you might think of? Man, game theory and behavioral economics are and like were my favorite like themes of discussion when we were studying. Mm. Like it's so interesting. It is just, it's so great. Um, you know, you're doing those courses and you're actually fully like engrossed in what you're being taught, you know. It's not necessarily being taught through diagrams and graphs, but very tangible real world examples that you can just examine from your own point of view, right? Exactly. So yeah, it is it is weird to think about. But uh all right. That was how that was the direction I took our topic sentence. And for those of you who forgot, it's economics is a game and nobody knows the rules. Um, not even bounded rationality the little uh, dilemmas we presented today um, cover bounded rationality. And even if they did cover bounded rationality, it's nowhere near uh, enough to explain uh, human behavior and psychology. We're only just tipping the iceberg. Well, we're just at the tip of the iceberg in terms of human psychology when it comes to economics. We recommend you do uh, your right. research as well. Yes, definitely. Def I could have said things wrong. You know, <laughs> you know it's fairly confident. <laughs> I, when I looked at the, the topic, 
economics is a game and no one knows the rules. I actually also thought tragedy of the commons. Uh, mm. No, no, that's a joke. But um, I will actually give you a quote just to kind of outline what I'm going to be chatting about today. And let me know if you right. know who said this, okay? Okay. Here we go. There have been more theories about how the economy works than there are grains of sand. And I guarantee I can find you an economist today who will support any one of them until their dying breath. Ooh, that's a good one. That's really good. And I think I know where you're going. Not because uh, you spoiled it. <laughs> I don't think when we were chatting, but um, we were chatting about this. But also just because uh, I think it's going in the lines of economic theories, which I, I very much enjoy. Um, no, I can't guess who, who said it. Give me, give me a, a John Maynard case. You know, <laughs> we will be chatting about him in a little bit. But this, this quote, yeah, uh, I, I said this. This was me. Um, ah, that was you. Wow. But I, I couldn't believe it was you. This quote it was, it sounded like such an esteemed gentleman. I, I worked very hard on it. But this quote is, in essence, a thesis statement about what I wanted to chat about today. And when I saw the title, The Economy is a Game and No One Knows the Rules, I thought of economic schools of thought, which, to those who don't know, they're, in essence, the philosophies that econom economic thinkers from as far flung into history as we can imagine, right up until this very day, have proposed how the economy should work, would work better. And to be honest, there's so much to cover on this topic. I had a lot of fun digging into the subject. But I actually, for a little bit of a change of pace, I wanted to start by chatting about a more contemporary subject uh, to do with the subject that is economic schools of thought. And like currently in this contemporary setting, there are more or less two, kind of three, major economic schools of thought that people debate over. These are probably the ones that you are more familiar with if you have a passing knowledge of economics. The first one that I want to chat about is, we spoke about him earlier, John Maynard Keynes. Uh, Keynesian economics, mm. sometimes known as saltwater economics. There are a bunch of names for these things, and they're all kind of a conglomerate of other economic thoughts. So I've tried to just distill and make it a little bit more palatable. But Keynesian economics mm. is, in essence, the economics that you might find a little bit today, more likely in the 1900s. But our friend, John Maynard, as we last learned last episode, Keynes, put forward that for an economy to be su successful and stable, you need to have the free market, which is made up of private businesses and individuals, to play fair with the government. You need a combination of the two. And why? Well, according to the man himself, the free market had, and if he was still here today, has no balancing mechanism. It's too volatile. And without the government stepping in with fiscal and monetary policies, things like employment and price stability would be uncertain, unsured. To, to quote him, and this is actual 
quote from him, uh, markets can re- remain ir- irrational longer than you can remain solvent, which is a very good line. I love it a lot. That's amazing. That is amazing. Wow. All right. Is is it true? All right. And this is a bit of this is a bit of a segue, and I apologize. Did John Maynard Keynes play quite a big role in solving solving the global financial crisis? What did I kind of just make that up in my head? Because um, I thought his kind of claim to fame was, as you said, um, bringing the stabilizing effect through government spending. Am I just making that up in my head? I can't remember from our third year lectures. No, no, you're right. So during the Great Depression, one of the most staggering thoughts that uh, had occurred to people is that this free market thing doesn't necessarily work out the best. Uh, During the Great Depression, everything was terrible, everything was bad, and Keynes was one of the first individuals to kind of propose um, that maybe government should step in and offer a bit more of a helping hand, a bit more of a regulatory hand in stabilizing the economy. And yeah, that's actually a great segue because the other uh, school of thought, the big major school of thought was uh, like free market economics, otherwise known as the Chicago School or Freshwater uh, School of Economics. And these were in the kind of 1900s, the other major player in the contemporary schools of thought. This free market, or if you want to be fancy about it, laissez-faire, uh, basically put forward that the government shouldn't really have a place in the economy. The economy will sort itself out eventually. And this was kind of brought forward by people such as Milton Friedman uh, and Friedrich Hayek. Uh, during the 1900s, now that we're chatting about it, like those two individuals, it's an all-out brawl between them and John Maynard Keynes. Like, if you dig into the research a little bit, like they were going back and forth, criticizing each other's theories. And yeah, Keynes had this theory that after the Great Depression, government should be uh, employing more fiscal policies, uh, essentially giving people money to spend. Uh, But in the 1970s or so, uh, there was a period of stagflation. And so all the Keynesian economics were like, this wasn't in our models, what is happening? And that's when some speakers like Milton Friedman kind of bit back and started chatting about... I'm going to stop you there. What the hell is stagflation? I actually genuinely forgot. I've heard of it before. So So just stagflation is a great question. Inflation, as we all know, is the moderate uh, increase of prices over time. And you have instances where there's hyperinflation, uh, where the prices just increase quite rapidly, such as with... Zimbabwe, if I remember correctly. Is that? Yes. Yeah. So, yeah. In the, no, definitely Zimbabwe. Terrible. <laughs> in the morning, something could cost like a dollar, and then by the evening, it could cost like $12. Uh, but stagflation is when that is happening, when prices are rising. However, usually with inflation, it's caused by people spending money. Uh, stagflation is when there is inflation. However, there's also rising unemployment at the same time. So you have this economy mm. that is just slowing down quite heavily and is in a very big pickle. Mm. Okay. That's, 
All right, that'll stick in my head for a while. That makes sense. Yeah. So. All right. So the economy is in like a double pickle. If the economy is high, <laughs> exactly. You know, people's you know people's money is is not going as far. But if people, if there's unemployment and people's money isn't going as far, um, you know, then you're in real trouble. Yeah. All right. So Milton Friedman and Friedrich Hayek, they were proponents of this free market where the government didn't intervene. And there was this bit of a, a scuffle between the two, uh, academically speaking, of course. But that no government intervention means no subsidies, no regulations, no bailouts. And that last one was the one that like really caught my attention. And to play a bit of devil's advocate here, uh, to be on the side of the free market, like I kind of understand where they're coming from with that respect like a majority the no bails the no bailout thing yes because as we know mm. a majority of the banks during the housing crisis in 2008 were bailed out and the people suffered oh, yeah. instead and in a more kind of modern setting you have banks more recently like silicon valley bank who were also bailed oh, yeah. out uh yeah it got me thinking like maybe in part to the fact that they know they can be bailed out or they have this assumption that they will be they mm. take more risks than they should because they think the government will step in. Like, if they didn't think that, would things like the housing crisis and Silicon Valley Bank have happened? Any thoughts on that? Um, that's a tough one. It actually relates to the psychology um, of these people running the big banks. You know, it, it could definitely be that. The... You know, the incentives and punishments aren't aligned to stop an externality like a, a housing crisis bubble. Oh, I think I said global financial crisis earlier for Keynes and or Keynes, not uh, Great Depression. Sorry, um, I just remembered. Uh, yeah, but it also could do with the psychology of uh, temporal thinking, you know. One day they're doing well, they're expecting they're doing well forever, you know. Yeah. Very much in terms of overconfidence as well. Um, when everything's on a bull run, bandwagon effect can even be, you know, taken to account. The line um, needs to go up. But yeah. for sure, for sure, um, in American history, at least in most modern history, you know, most banks end in bailouts. Yes. Like, let's be honest. Or not end in bailouts. I mean, you know, the stories end in bailouts and then we wait 10 or 20 years for another, you know, giant uh, bubble to burst and then you know we go through this whole song and dance again <laughs> um but i i think it you definitely have it right um i actually thought the silicon bank um or the silicon valley bank wasn't bailed out this time i mean i may have missed something um i'm not too sure uh but yeah it's it's a massive problem um uh, and yeah i i tend to agree with you at least on that last point uh, for sure so it looks like it wasn't bailed out by taxpayers' money, but it was transferred to another bank. So maybe technically not a bailout, <laughs> yeah. But a a some money well, was what exchanged. What if that big? What if the bigger bank gets bailed out? That's it. <laughs> Whatever, you know. <laughs> yeah. It's like, let's look the the housing crisis is the foremost example, but it did make me think of more contemporary stuff. Uh, I had uh, at this point, I've. I had had enough of like researching contemporary stuff, so I decided to look into what were kind of the fledgling schools of economic thought in the past. Like, what did people before, people like Adam Smith and Keynes and Milton Friedman, think about 
the economy itself, like the philosophy on how it should be. Because, yeah, the economy is a game and no one knows the rules. And from what I found, like, there's a lot of really interesting stuff. There's a lot of very cool, like, individuals and, like, uh, more kind of like a civilization aspect on very sort of economic schools of thought. But the two individuals that I wanted to highlight, uh, one you will have heard of, one like he, likely you would have not. But to set the context here, um, economics is a relatively new field of study, so a lot of discussion in the past before Adam Smith and the Industrial Revolution centered rather around ethics, philosophy, and the household as a home, as as pure of a concept as that can be. And the first individual that we wanna that I want to chat about is Aristotle. Heard of him? <laughs> well, that was I did not expect that. I don't know the names. <laughs> well, I guess you talked about philosophy, so maybe I could have. But no, I didn't expect Aristotle. And yes, I have heard of him. Well, believe it or not, Aristotle was a pretty smart guy. <laughs> he had a foot in every major science of philosophy, not just politics and philosophy, but he also had contributions to, like, physics and all sorts of really cool stuff, and economics was one of them. But as I said, the idea of economics back then was very different. It mostly focused on the role of households, how their labor contributed to their local economy, and how those households could achieve the quote-unquote good life. The idea of surplus or hoarding wealth was kind of not disgusted, but disapproved upon by Aristotle. He was for like private property, but very much advocated the fact that like people should just make sure that they have enough for their household, and then you're good. And it's quite a very basic. Uh, way of thinking. I mean, for the time that it was in, like the economy was not as dense as it is today. Mm. But nevertheless, in this primordial stage of economic thought, Aristotle and many others, uh, his progenerates, the people he drew inspiration from and uh, mentored, had some really awesome and like almost like a premonition of economic theories to come. Topics like, as you mentioned, human rationality, scarcity, and even like the theory of demand, because demand and supply wasn't a concept until Adam Smith really like boiled it down to a science. But you had someone like Aristotle chatting about some form of demand nearly 2,000 years ago. That blew my mind when I read it. So, so Adam Smith wasn't it? We should be like building economic statues of Aristotle. Is that what you say? I mean, I think it's just impressive that he, uh, like, put into writing and put into like not mathematical theories, but kind of more philosophical theories about a lot hmm. of the economic things that we take for granted today. And yeah, it put into perspective that like Adam Smith wasn't too long ago, and economics is a very like new. I don't know if you want to call it a science, but a, a like a social study, so to speak. Mm. Yeah, I mean, economics 
has always been a weird one. You know, you try to describe economics to someone and you say it's somewhere between uh, maths and, and uh, you know, social science. And yes. Stuff. You know, it, it's meeting right in the middle. Um, and it is quite hard to put numbers to to human behaviors and emotions. And, you know, if you put a 0.7 in front of a value, you're assuming that, you know, 70% of, um, you know, like people in the market are responding to a stimulus and things like that. You know, that's kind of what economics boils down to is those assumptions. A lot of assumptions. And, yeah, a lot of assumptions. Um, and yeah, I think you mentioned it as well, but over the years, it's not like, someone comes up with a school economic thought and then someone comes up with a new one and then the old one gets thrown out. Um, it's very much built upon the last. I mean, I remember in, in, in one lecture, for example, and this kind of stuck in my head, at one point there was a school of economic thinking. Um, it was some like classical, it wasn't neoclassical. I think it was classical and then it evolved to neoclassical. Um, and they thought supply created its own demand. Um, that as long as you had manufacturers and suppliers of products, demand would increase relative to how much supply was made. You know, it's only until it was actually kind of a recent development in the human school of thinking in terms of economics that, you know, actually demand is what is creating that supply for that product. Right, yeah. Which I just thought that was so backwards how that came around, but, you know, that's, that's you know, it's backwards thinking to us now. But back then, you know, they just saw goods were being produced, carpets were being made down the road. They assumed there was a need for carpets. <laughs> um, I mean, no, that's just, I don't know. I don't know how they came to the conclusion themselves, obviously. But a quick Google you know, that entire... says that it's Say's yeah. law, apparently. Yeah. Oh, my word. You just opened my mind to, to, um, <laughs> to those first year lectures, man, where they were drawing a supply and demand on the graph, and, you know, how it evolved throughout the years. Yeah. Spoilers, it didn't really evolve. <laughs> the graph kind of remained the same. <laughs> Just the theories behind it differed. I mean, it's a good history lesson for <laughs> which sure. Is, yeah, which is kind of what we're getting at, right? Is that there's this, there's this unexplained hole at the bottom of economics um, that may remain unanswerable how to incentivize people to make rational choices or how to share information so that, you know, better choices get made for your community and, and we can minimize externalities. Um, and schools of economic thought and behavioral economics and game theory, these all play such a pivotal role. Um, it's just hard to gauge where we are with it. You know, you can't, you know, we could be, nearing the maximum amount of knowledge we'll ever know for economics. So, you, it's, you sound like you're heading towards an outro, but I still have one dude that I want to talk about. Oh, okay. No, go for it. Talk about your last dude. I mean, I'm very interested. So Aristotle lived about 300 BCE, so a very long time ago. Uh, this other individual that uh, I researched, and uh, his name is Wang Anshi, and he was around about within the first millennia of, um, like, after Christ or after the Common Era, um, he's probably one of my favorite ancient economic thinkers, just because he, his, like, thoughts and stuff, like, parallel very beautifully to some of the things that are happening today. So, to give some context, Wang Anshi was a Chinese chancellor during the Song Dynasty, uh, and he put forth 
a couple of fairly controversial policies called the new policies that advocated for the prevention of large estates to consolidate, consolidate rather. So what that essentially means is that he was trying to stop them from monopolizing land and wealth and then making others dependent on their wealth and their agriculture, as overall it would cause peasants to suffer. And he didn't want that to happen, which apparently was a controversial policy uh, back then. But he would call these people who would consolidate the wealth in this way engrossers. And there's this really great quote from this guy that says, Today, in every prefecture and sub-prefecture, there are families of engrossers that annually collect interest amount to, amounting to several myriad strings of cash without doing anything. What contribution have they made to the state to enjoy such a good salary? And I, I started clicking my fingers. I was like, go off, Wang. That is Damn. great. And I started thinking about that in a contemporary setting where we have, uh, I guess this is once more an American example, but a lot of like the private sector swallowing up houses and land and properties mm-hmm. and things like that and making others depending on depend on them for a home in exchange for rent and things like that. And I think the main takeaway that I took from kind of researching the history side of things is that like a lot of the more initial thoughts of economic schools of thought were almost naive in a way about thinking about how humans would act and would have that rationality in any certain situation like Aristotle and Wang Shi, they were all proponents of almost a, a kind of socialism, or at least a, uh, a lack of monopoly and oligopoly. And it's really crazy to think, like, what would their thoughts be on what well, is happening today, you know? Yeah, it sounds like he's very much a proponent of, because uh, all the word is meritocracy, right? It sounds like he was very much a proponent of, you know, what... What are they doing to accumulate this wealth yes. you know, that that normal people aren't doing? I think it's that it's that doing that he was very much, or it sounds like he was very much disgusted by. You know, they just had wealth. What they did was they used that wealth to uh, purchase more things, and then they did nothing uh, some more. Um, yeah, yeah, that's very interesting. The the anti monopolization wow. so- is like was the the that. I think is a very novel concept for someone of that era. Because, mm, I mean, if you think of... Oh, it's a tough one, right? Because if he was a chancellor, I'm assuming there was some kind of, you know, emperor of that dynasty as well at the time. I wonder what he thought of it. Um, because, you know, I mean, if you think an emperor is kind of the same thing. You're essentially doing nothing and monopolizing an entire nation. So he was... Another kettle of fish. In the context, he was a chancellor. Uh, he was essentially like a political advisor to the Song dynasty. So he wasn't in charge, but he had enough power to, it seems, to put forth policies, and it it seemed that not a lot of people liked them. So did he put forward that policy? And, like, do you know how it turned out? Was it 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 end with his head on a, you know, on a spear? (laughs) (laughs) Something like that. From what I remember, I think that it did go through. So, in essence, like, he was quite good at, like, organizing 
not just his duty in the government, but also finance. Uh, so the actual policies did go through uh, as to like what if he was killed from it i don't think so i think he still had mm. some time thereafter of of governance but uh, it wasn't a very popular policy by the people who um essentially were the wealthy like the the one percent of the song dynasty mm. does it does it often depress you that uh we go down these these same uh we make these same mistakes when, when you dig in histories and, and do this kind of analysis, do you see the same things happening today? I mean, sometimes it fills me with such, you know, just such, uh, what's the word? Uh, you know, lack of hope um, that, it, that it will ever change. Uh, that's probably a stronger word, but, you know, it makes you think, is there an answer? Is it fine if there's no answer? Or, you know, is the answer just, you know, a couple people not being complete dicks. <laughs> yeah. Um, I I mean, the world back then and today, I think, is a lot more complicated <laughs> and complex. I mean, yeah, everything's a little bit interwoven. So, like, un, mm. like trying to, like, take the knots out of it is a lot more difficult than it would have been otherwise. Yeah. It feels like the genie's kind of out the bottle. And a, a lot of these things and, and sometimes for the worse, you know, um, you can't really put that genie back, um, even though, you know, with the hindsight that you got from the genie being out the bottle, that this is maybe a better way of going about um, some kind of you know, large economic system or even, for example, tackling housing, um, you know, maybe not having housing necessarily seen as an asset, you know, more of a right. Things like that are often discussed uh, in economics and you know, how to address it right now is the problem. You know, how do you go back and, and solve housing, for example, being seen as a store of wealth rather than just having someone, you know, as a human being live there yeah. with their intrinsic worth? Um, it's a difficult one. Um, and I think... I hope, hopefully some smart people will come up with <laughs> some solutions. Maybe it'll be one of our listeners one day who is inspired. No pressure. Um, but, um, <laughs> yeah, I think... My main takeaway from all of this is that the economy is a game and nobody knows the is rules. It? Is it a game? <laughs> yeah, man. It's a game. I don't think anyone knows the rules either. Who cares? And on that... Yeah, who cares if we have a chessboard <laughs> and we're playing checkers or backgammon or whatever. Yeah. And on that, you know, 